0: kind of hate to interrupt that song, that's really good, um, but uh, let's press on. A um, couple, couple things before we, we get into the Word, um, it's really good to see the Metzlers, all right, haven't had a chance to say hey to you yet, but hey, <laughs> and, and uh, it's good to have you guys back, we are going to keep Daryl, so... Um, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> um, and uh, just want to just bring you up to speed. Um, this is Dave and Cricket's last Sunday before heading back for the next chunk of time. I just said to Dave, hopefully it'll get hot early up there, you know, get them back down here sooner, um, uh, but you guys just... It's a blessing to me. Um, You don't know this, but where I sit, you know, and they're they're behind me, I just feel their joy and their love for the Lord. And it's just encouraging. You guys are encouraging folks. And so we're so glad to have you when we have you. All right? So God bless you and have a safe trip. Really, I don't know. Like, I want to call this your home. But that's really your home. And... And God bless you guys and your church there. Uh, Yes, so um, also, maybe one more thought. I just want to thank you, church. Um, Last week, it's already been referenced, but it was just a a full building last week. And I just want to thank you, church, for your hospitality towards guests. When guests walk in this room, it, I, I want us to feel that. I want us to recognize this is, this is our home. How do you welcome a guest into your home? You give them your seat, you know? You give them your seat. You literally, like, um, you know, churches are weird places. <laughs> Have you noticed? Um, you know, and like, this is my seat, you know, kind of thing. And this is where I'm at every week. And, I, you know, I like the aisle, you know, kind of thing. And you know, but these are guests, and we give them our seat, and 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 we engage with them, we interact with them, we want them to feel at home. Uh, For some, you know, being in the church can just be so uncomfortable, and we want to do all that we can, and uh, to help folks because we're gonna we're gonna preach the word, and that can that can at times you know increase the discomfort. Um, and so thank you so much. Just how you cared for people last week. So this morning we are we are back into 2 Samuel. All right. So we are gonna finish these books if the Lord wills, so, alright? So there is that potential that we don't finish. Like the, the Lord may return before we get to the end here, but we we believe. That, um, that we're going to make it to the end, and we're, we're nearing the end. Actually, it will have this sermon and two more, um, and we will, we will arrive at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, the title this morning is A Painful Reality and a Hopeful Truth. Uh, David's life, you, you kind of look at it and just go, what a roller coaster. Very high highs, very low lows. Very high highs, he slays Goliath the giant. Not because of his strength, because of his great faith in the Lord. High highs, low lows, Bathsheba. High highs, low lows. Uh, you're, how, about, how about Samuel, kind of the coronation moment? Samuel announcing to young David, you're the king. High highs. But not yet, (laughs) very low lows. Saul's the king, Um, but you're going to be the king, high highs. But the king is hunting you down to kill you, low lows. And you're hiding in caves. Um, High highs, the king, Saul, is now gone. Now, Now you're the king, low lows. Now, well, your son is trying to steal your kingship, low lows. Your son dies. You're finally, you're the king. You know, you can almost see the high highs and low lows. Not almost. You can absolutely see the high highs and low lows just by reading the Psalms. High highs, as an example, Psalm 23. Low lows, Psalm 51. So we are nearing the end of the book. And the way that this concludes is it gives us these summaries Of the high highs and low lows, and these final chapters—they're—you need to track with this. This is important, or else you're going to be confused as we're working through these final chapters. They're not written in chronological order. There—that's not the point. It's not—it's not to give us some chronology, some history lesson. It's to dip into the high high and low lows and give us a summary of king and kingdom. And not, when I say that, I don't mean King David and his kingdom. I mean, there's a better king and better kingdom that's coming. High highs, low lows. And uh, let's just read verse 1 and then we'll pray. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Let's pray. God, we just pray for your wisdom, your help in these moments, Lord, as has already been prayed. But once again, you are building your church. Do so through the preaching of your word, through the foolishness of this preacher. Lord, in my attempts to communicate the glories of your word. Lord, what can I say? Help Help, Lord, come by your Spirit. Grant us your Spirit. Grant us help this morning, believer and unbeliever alike. Be at work in all of our lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a difficult text that we're going to work our way through. That's point one, this difficult text, our difficult lives, and the far-reaching consequences of sin. I know that's a mouthful. But that's what I'm going with. That's the first 14 verses. It's a difficult text. And and, and here's the thing, church, we don't want to ignore difficult texts just because they're difficult. Um, it's why we preach again, expositorily, because it bumps us up against these kinds of texts. So, you know, if you're just if we're gonna preach topically. I don't think me, I don't think Christian, we're not going to land on this text. We're going to skip this text. You're never going to um, uh, be served because even though it's difficult, it's going to serve you to fight with, wrestle with, work through texts like this one. Um, there's, there's a reason we don't like difficult texts. Often it's because we don't like what it says about God and about us. About God, we like to minimize. We like to bring God's character kind of down, closer to ours. If we can minimize God, um, it, it it helps us. It helps us feel a little better about our sinful selves. God is holy. God is perfect in His holiness. Every response that He brings in this world is right. Every response. That's difficult. want to ask you do you believe that because if you believe that then every natural disaster takes place under God's sovereign hand and care and justice and righteousness and holiness in perfect operation you may be struggling with me struggle with the word Struggle with the word. Every drop of rain falls because God calls it to do so. A low view, though, of God's character will cause struggle in the difficult texts, in the difficult moments of our lives. Okay, that's one. We like to minimize God's character. We like to bring him down, make him more like us. And secondly, they're difficult texts because we're trying to elevate us. All right, so if we can just somehow bridge some of that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness, well, that just makes things a whole lot easier. And so we we have a high view of self, a low view of God, bring it a little bit closer, minimize God, elevate ourselves. And so we say things like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, right. What are we doing, though, when we're doing that? We're trying to Lift ourselves up a little bit. Nobody's perfect. I'm not as bad as that guy. Or, um, you know, they're they're mistakes. They're they're little indiscretions We, we tend to avoid. No, we are sinful. The gap is not getting closed by our thoughts of lowering God and raising self. The gap exists, and it's a grand, great divide. So we minimize God, we bring him down to our size, we maximize ourselves, we seek to raise ourselves up. And this is, in essence, what is that? It's a false gospel. It's a false hope. It seeks to bridge the divide between man and God without the need of a Savior. We don't need Jesus at that point. If we can do that, if we can get him down, get us up enough, and the result is we come to a difficult text like this this morning, or we come to our difficult lives this morning, and we start to blame God. We question his authority, we get angry over his sovereignty, and we doubt his wisdom. Second Samuel 21, we'll start verses 1 and 2, seeks to address this. Let's read again. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Three years famine. That is not American famine. Okay, just just get that in your mind. Year after year, it says. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. We'll pause there. So David has this problem, and it's a big problem. The problem is is that there's three year famine, and Scripture just kind of emphasizes it by saying year after year, right? So you got this three year famine. It's bad. Listen again. This is not okay. Um, the shelves are kind of emptying in the grocery store. This is you put seed in the ground and there's nothing to water it. This is come harvest time, we're in trouble. And this is three years going. This is life and death. I would imagine there are people dying, starving when it simply announces there's a three-year famine year after year. It's bad. It's a desperate place. And in that desperate place, we're told that David seeks the face of the Lord. And I would just encourage us, we would do well in that desperate place to seek the face of God. David sought the Lord because there was this problem, and the problem is famine. But what we find out is that's not the biggest problem. There's this grand famine because Saul had grand sin. Quick history, because it unpacks there a little bit in the first two verses. But when God brought the Israelites out of captivity, think Egypt, think Exodus, all right? He brings them out of captivity. He brings them where? To the promised land. All right, we're jumping over some... Numbers and Deuteronomy, but but make your way to Joshua, all right. So we come to um, Joshua, and they are to drive out the Canaanites, right, and uh, come into the Promised Land. One of those peoples among the Canaanites was the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites got wise as to what was going on with Joshua, and they trick him. They 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 create a covenant with Joshua, a peace treaty, allow us to live among you safely. And you can read about that in Joshua chapter 9. And you'll see there in Joshua chapter 9, it was foolish for Joshua to do what he did. But he did it nonetheless. Foolish or not, God expects Israel to uphold the covenant that they make, okay? So Joshua warns the people, if you break this covenant, you'll bring the wrath of God upon yourself. And Joshua cut a covenant. Now we've talked about covenants as we're working through Samuel, but just a 30 second version, right? Cut a covenant means you're gonna take an animal, you're gonna sacrifice an animal, you're gonna take the two parts of the animal, you're gonna put one part on this side of the aisle and one part on this side of the aisle, and I'm gonna walk through, right? And then Paul's gonna walk through and we have cut a covenant. And what we're saying in cutting that covenant is me and Paul are saying, if I break the covenant, may may what's happened to that sacrifice now come upon me. Me be cursed, all right? So can you imagine? Yeah, no, you can't. All right, so Andy and Audrey are getting married soon. Can you imagine? We're... We're going to cut a covenant, all right? So we're going to, at the wedding ceremony, yeah, can you, it's at a farm, so, I mean, <laughs> it's at stable. so we've got animals that we can, we can do, we can cut this. But can you imagine, like, the imagery that like, we take vows today, even merit, merit, um, marriage vows, so haphazardly, no, may what's happened to this animal happen to me, I am covenanting Not just me and wife, me and the Lord. That's your marriage covenant. And the imagery shouldn't be lost on us. We take vows so lightly. Some of you are in a difficult marriage or you might even say I'm in a foolish marriage. Well, Joshua's covenant was foolish. They make that clear. That doesn't get him an out from the covenant that he's made. Just encourage us. Don't take your vows lightly. So David says to God, why, why the famine? And God's reply is because there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Okay, we, we foolishly think that our sin just affects us. When it says that, and on his house, wow, well, I mean, that, that well, Not only on his house, but what? There's three years famine in the land. It's the consequences of sin are far reaching here. And that's painful reality. Um, Because in some ways, right? Saul represented us as a nation when he did what he did against the Gibeonites. And so I I just want to go back in a moment for a moment and address all of us who are elders here this this should there's a there's a sense of soberness amongst us right? like we we pray together as a team may nothing come to us that would be a reproach to Christ and the body of Christ we see it so often in our culture in our day oh. pray for your elders um, because, because when an elder goes down in sin, it has far-reaching consequences. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's the reality of sin. Whether it's elders or whether it's any of us, the painful reality is that sin has consequences. David Firth writes, sin takes us much farther, further than we want to go. And its reach is far greater than we could have ever imagined. The sins of both Saul and David are like stones thrown in the middle of a pond. The initial plunge into the water makes a big splash, but the ripples move from the middle of the pond to the shore and then back to the middle in innumerable waves in miniature collisions. This is the nature of sin. One never can calculate its fallout. Saul's so sin not only impacts himself, but also his family. And I'm gonna to add to you, the whole community are being affected by his sin. We think we sin in private. We think sin won't hurt anyone. We think if it, if it hurts, it's only gonna hurt me. We think, well, God will understand. Certainly, God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in this marriage. God, God doesn't expect me to stay in this marriage and, and be unhappy. I think you're wrong. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. Does Jesus forgive you? Absolutely. But we would be wise to not jump there too quickly. You see, we want a Jesus who forgives and the, fi- and the effects of our sin are no more. The painful reality is he absolutely does forgive. And the painful realities of sin remain often. Broken families, broken marriages, broken vows. If you steal at work and lose your job, you can be forgiven by God. But the consequences live on. You're going to need to find another job. Yes, forgiven. The blood of Christ wipes away all our guilt. Yes, absolutely. But the consequences of our sinful actions remain. You know, we like to talk about the thief on the cross, Oh, he's gonna be in hell, right? Like have we ever thought on the other side of that? He stole from someone. (laughs) Like, you know, the consequences of his sin even live beyond. He's on a cross because probably didn't steal a little something. Like somebody remains. Victims remain behind. How about family? How about the shame of the cross? Was that your brother who was on the cross? Consequences continue. Let's pick up in verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? Okay, so Saul has broken the covenant and he has destroyed the, the Gibeonites. And David's coming back around to the Gibeonites. What shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement? Wow. Wow. We're gonna to have to come back to that. Hello, um, he's saying there. If you're not familiar with that language, how, how do I make this right? How do I restore the relationship that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The giving. I said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold. That would be our answer, right? You got to remunerate. Like you got, you got to make it right. Silver and gold. That's what it's gonna take between us. And Saul or his house, they're saying, no, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do I say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that's Saul, that's who they're talking about, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. That's the broken covenant that Saul was intending. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. And this is not Awkward phrase. The chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Well, welcome to Trinity. Right? What an awkward moment in the text this morning. And David says to the Gibeonites, how do I make this right? What shall I do for you? How do I make atonement? We don't want your gold. The man who sought to destroy us, that we would have no place here, which was the promise of Joshua... That we would have a place. And they say, give us seven sons. We'll hang them. Verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth. Oh, remember Mephibosheth? That's the son of Jonathan. You know why he spared him? Because he had a covenant with Jonathan. Like, this this was an awkward moment. He's got to figure out, okay, how do I uphold the one covenant? And how do I bring atonement for the broken one? He upholds it, but the king spares Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord, the vow that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is another Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai. The Maholite, Maholathite, yeah. And he gave them into, I told you, it was a difficult text. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death on the first day of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you might be here going, what in the world am I reading? David had covenanted with Jonathan, so he bears the one. And Israel had a covenant with the Gibeonites, and so he gives up the seven. Verse 10, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. This is, this is mom of a couple of the, of the boys. Can you imagine? It does maybe put into our mind a bit of Mary at the cross of Christ. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. I mean, she's, she's protecting the bodies. She's chasing away the birds and the beasts. Wow. Verses 10 through 14 will go on to tell us that David will gather the bones of Saul, Jonathan, these seven men, and they will be buried together. I won't read those verses. You can read that on your own. So the king dealt with the consequences of Saul's sins by delivering up these, um, to the Gibeonites these seven men to be hanged. And this is just an absolutely horrific scene. What do we do with this? Well, one, know that we live in a sinful world and that we ourselves are sinful. The key to understanding what's going on here is there in verse 3. How shall I make atonement? How do I make this right? It should be the question on every person's lips this morning. How do I make this right? I am a covenant breaker. You're a covenant breaker. How do I make this right? How do I make atonement? How do I make things right between me and God? Because the chasm... Arms aren't long enough to stretch, right? Like it. Holy God, covenant breaker. How do I make atonement? Two, David attempted to do the right thing for the Gibeonites. He was seeking to bring justice. We love justice. We all cry justice until we're at fault. (laughs) Then we kind of tone down the justice. I want justice. Do you? It's what the king, it's what the government is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring justice. But wow, seven men died for the sin of Saul. Now think about what the text doesn't say. We don't begin to read, and David sought God, not only about the first problem, and hearing that it's the blood guilt of Saul, we don't hear him seeking the Lord. What do I do? what do I do? He goes to the Gibeonites. The other thing the text doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us, they said, give us seven men of Saul's family. It doesn't tell us, I'll give you something better. The king doesn't say, I'll give you something better. Instead of these seven, I'll give you the one. I'll give you myself. I'll come off my throne. And I offer you me. Verse 14b, it says, And after that God responded to the plea of the land. In the next verses, I again won't take the time to read them, but verses 15 through 22, it tells us of war with the Philistines. And you're going to hear, And there was war again, and there was war again. And four times over in just a few verses, uh, verses 15, 18, 19, and 20, and there was war again. And it tells of the of in the war again it tells us of one individual it's another Goliath it should recall us to mind okay what's what's being said we have war with the Philistines here's another Goliath here's another giant if it will it should send us back and go wow they're fighting with giants there's an individual with six fingers and six toes on each of his hands and each and then bible has to even give us in case if we can't do the math ourselves tell us 24 <laughs> He's got 24 toes and fingers, which is to say, giants. There's war again. Giants and giants. And giants are defeated in these final verses. Another Goliath and a guy with 24 fingers and toes. And there's victory. Let's move on. Point number two. The king who took my place and defeated my giant problem. Or, point two, substitutionary atonement. That's the the nice, fancy word. That's the theological word. The king who took my place and defeated my giant problem. How does this difficult text speak to us today? Well, I believe it calls us to repentance and faith and worship, and to to say, God, I want to grow in godliness, and honor you, and evangelism to a world who might not know you. Or you could say it like this, treasure Christ, grow in Christ, proclaim Christ. Proclaim the Christ who is the better king, who didn't offer other lives up as a solution to make atonement, to make things right in relationship, but the king who stepped off his throne, he left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, that he might be crucified, that the gap, the chasm, might be taken care of. That you and I might have relationship because in our sin, there's an offended party. And God's not the one who broke the covenant. God, the covenant keeper, since the beginning of time, since sin entered the garden in Genesis 3, has kept the covenant. But you and I, not so. So the innocent king, King Jesus, offers himself to the guilty. The sin isn't David's there. It was Saul's sin. The sin isn't Jesus. It's not his. The difference is both kings are innocent of the crimes before them, and one king offered up um, from the guilty family of Saul, and the other king offers up himself to pay for the sins. You and I. Now, I tend to read my Old Testament self righteously. Do you? Like, what's wrong with Saul at different times? Or what's wrong with David at different times? Do you you read it like that? Like, is there a sense in you of self-righteousness? Like, I could do better. I could do better here. I'm a covenant breaker. And I deserve the consequences of my actions. So the question for all of us this morning, how shall I make atonement? How do I make things right in this relationship between myself and God? Do I just lower God's character and raise mine somehow? Do I just work really hard at it? Do I just try to be a a better person and do good and maybe even follow the law here in the Old Testament? How shall I make atonement Here's the question in the text that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. The gospel answer, meaning the good news answer in Scripture, is substitutionary atonement. Meaning, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took the full punishment that my sins, your sins, deserved by dying on the cross in my place, in my stead. He stood. We are guilty and deserving death. You see, all sins will be atoned for. You understand that. All sin gets atoned for. It either gets atoned for through our death. We will pay the price for our sins. That is, uh, Romans tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord So we will either pay for our sins or we will trust in Christ who paid for our sins. But it's not as if there are some sins out there that go unatoned for. We are guilty, deserving death. My sin is great and God's holiness is great. It is perfect and sin must be paid for No sin goes unpunished. All sin gets atoned for. This is the gospel that we celebrate here this morning. Christ came to die in my place. He took the full punishment that my sins deserve. Saul represented the people, right? And so his sin spills out and it affects the people. Christ represents the people and his blood spills out and represents the people. All those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will their sins will be atoned for. They will be made right in the eyes of God. And seven hanged and atoned or satisfied or made right the relationship between Israel and the Gibeonites and Christ died and atoned for, or satisfied, or made right the relationship between you and God. Christ died in my place. Substitutionary atonement. You know, that's taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We'll just go to one place in the Old Testament. There's many places we could go to. Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne them. This is, this is I don't know how many hundreds of years before Christ ever, ever came and took on human flesh in that manger. This is the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our our sorrows verse 5 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace verse 10 yet it was the will of the lord to crush him we think that second samuel 21 is a difficult text Oh, we have no idea how difficult of a text. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will. We just think, oh, well, of course, the will of the Lord, crush them. I can easily be fine with that and struggle with these seven men. It was the will of the Lord that the Son of God would be crushed by human hands. Why was it the will of the Lord? Because it was the will of the Lord to save sinners. Praise be to our God. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. That's Old Testament. We can go to plenty of places in the Old Testament. Let's jump to the New Testament. Romans begins by telling us that we as sinners deserve what we deserve as we sin against a holy God. Romans 3 tells us that sin has separated us. It's that chasm that I've been describing. It separates us from God. And law obeying or good works isn't going to solve our gap. It's not going to bring us into right relationship with God. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are we to do? How can we atone for sin? How can we make things right? Glad you're asking. Verse 24, Romans 3. And are justified. That means to be made right, to be declared righteous in God. So, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified. How do you be made right? By his grace as a gift. You don't earn that, you don't work for that. That's not your law keeping. Through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word. It means to appease God, to satisfy the righteous right wrath of God. You say, we love justice. All right, here it is. Sin must be satisfied, atoned for. We love the wrath of God till we, I mean, we love the justice of God till we start thinking about the wrath of God. These are not separate categories. So he put forward as a propitiation. How? By his blood. That's why we celebrate communion as a church. You take that cup. You take that bread. And you're celebrating this right here. To be received. How? By faith. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of our sins. This was to show God's righteousness. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Nothing says righteousness more than this. This is how the sin problem will be dealt with and atoned for. The perfect Son of God will die in our place to establish righteousness in you and I because in His divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. That's a beautiful phrase. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. God put forward Christ, a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a a sacrificial, I mean a, a substitutionary atonement. Christ satisfied what our sins demand. What do they demand? Demands death. Christ died in my place. God's justified, holy wrath was satisfied at the cross of Christ so that he might be just. What does that mean? Sin doesn't get dismissed. It's not that he just says, Oh, you know what? Ah, we just, we're just going to dismiss that sin. It's not a presidential pardon. No, the sin must be paid for. The president says, I'll take his place in the prison cell. Christ died, pays the penalty for our sins. That he might be just, that's that's just. Justice is that sin is paid for, and he might be justifier. Just sins paid for. Justifier. He'll do the pain through his blood. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. And I'm just going to to do a drive-by. We're just going to do a quick drive-by. Other scriptures. And I'm just going to read them and try to limit comment. John 1 29. John is baptizing his disciples. Jesus comes walking onto the scene says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is that? Oh, well, that's the Old Testament sacrifice. One of them was the expiated sacrifice. It was the one that we place the sins of the people on that sacrifice and we send it into the wilderness. He carries away the sins of the people. One sacrifice was sacrificed. One sacrifice was sent away, expiated. Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All right, so if that's your game, that's how you're thinking about this. I'm just going to go with my works. I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to give it my all. Scripture, Holy Scripture would say of you, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So, in other words, if you're not perfect in your law abidingness, well, you're cursed. He goes on to say, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Because if we're morally honest, we're we're lawbreakers. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree second corinthians 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we that in him we might become the righteousness of god what is that substitutionary atonement first peter 2:24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Samuel 21, it's a difficult text. It's a painful reality. But not just simply a painful reality 2,000 years ago. No, it's it's a painful reality today. What's the hopeful truth in the midst of the painful reality? David is pointing us to another king, a better king. David had some very high highs and some very low lows. The hopeful truth is in the the midst of the painful reality that is our lives and our sinfulness is that a king is coming. You see, the giant mess here in the text isn't the famine, And the great solution isn't King David. The giant mess in the text is humanity's sin. And the hopeful reality for the believer back then is a better king is coming, who will come off his throne, and he will take our sins on his shoulders. You see, the truth is, is outside of Christ, we are in a famine. We are in spiritual famine. Famine of epic proportions. It's not even really famine. It's spiritual death. That's who we are outside of Christ. I love how it moves from that section of famine into section of war. Spiritual death, and we have an enemy. We are at war against sin, against our flesh, against the the devil himself. But Christ, our King, has dealt the death blow to our famine, to our spiritual deadness, to the giant enemy that is sin and death. How does he do so? By offering himself On the cross that we might be saved his sacrifice defeats our giant enemies but even more so the son of God the innocent one hung on the cross on behalf of the guilty say are you horrified by this text be more horrified when you're reading Matthew Mark Luke and John the innocent son of God is crucified That's the hopeful truth in the face of the painful reality. Jesus paid it all. Every bit, he paid. Stand with me. Father God, we now transition from these moments of listening and worshiping you, our hearts, and seeking to engage with your word, to to lifting our voices in worship of you. You are just infinitely worthy. Lord, thank you. You have bridged the gap. We, how, how do I atone? Well, I don't. I can't. But Lord, through your sacrifice, you allow us to place our faith in you, Jesus Christ, that we might now be standing here, perhaps some repenting, Perhaps some just lifting up their voices in joyful worship of you. You be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name.